In the name of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Welcome, and thank you once again to all of you who've gathered here as lay and clergy delegates to this convention, who are here to bring reports, make presentations, run for office, volunteer, provide logistic support, exhibit your wares and programs, or who have come simply to worship God this morning in Holy Eucharist. Everything we do here today at Christ Church is part and parcel of our common life. In worship, fellowship, the business of convention, and what we take back with us to our home congregations and communities. And may it always be said of our gatherings that they will know we are Christians by our love for one another. Baptized for Life is our theme for this convention business day as it was for yesterday's Leadership Day presentations. With that in mind, we framed this liturgy around the Book of Common Prayer's lectionary readings for baptism, with one exception. Our gospel reading from Matthew was my pick. From Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, these words point to the for life part of our baptized for life theme. It points to what happens after baptism, to our daily lives of discipleship. Out of these texts from Ezekiel, Romans, and Matthew, I focus on three descriptors of the spiritual effect implied in the phrase baptized for life. Clean, new, and striking. Through the prophet Ezekiel, God promises that Israel be, will be washed of its former disobedience and idolatry as with clean water. In the New Testament, Paul's letter to the Romans proclaims that baptism washes and raises us in Christ after burying and destroying our sins and worldly enslavements. For Ezekiel, that cleansing means a heart being turned from being as cold and lifeless as stone into a new heart full of life in the deepest sense. For Paul, baptismal cleansing means freedom from the double bondage of sin and of death. It means transformation into a new and vibrant life. For Jesus, as reported in Matthew, the transformation that comes with turning toward God makes a person notably present like the way the right amount of salt can make food flavors pop, like a bright, clear, and radiant light placed where it can be seen, clean, new, striking. Now, when I put it like that, I'm mildly amused 
that the first thing that jumps into my mind is, well, a new car. <laughs> With a new car, every speck of dust has been removed by the dealership. Even a new to us used car smells fresh and new. And every surface of a new car, every nook and cranny shines in the brightness of the sun. No blemishes in sight. It stands out. I know, a car is just a thing. Its newness wears off with use, weather, spills, and accidents. And once usage begins to show on a car, we can spruce it up with a vacuum, wash, and wax. The need for maintenance is inevitable and persistent. It is true that some cars get the kind of attention that makes them stand out for years and years, even decades and beyond. A few years back, I attended the National Episcopal Youth Event in Oklahoma City along with several Upper South Carolina youth and leaders. Included in our time there was a visit to a museum that included several unique and antique cars, including a few so rare and special that they had acquired a kind of saintly aura <laughs> within the car collecting community, even inspiring hushed pilgrimages. You and I are not automobiles. And yet, becoming mature disciples of Jesus Christ also requires daily attentiveness and maintenance, plus spiritual purpose and childlike acceptance of love as the way to eternal life. To be salt and light in an age that thrives on bitter divisiveness and dark assumptions about other people creates an arresting contrast. To be salt and light requires self-awareness and intention. Later in Paul's letter to the Romans, he calls us to lay aside the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. This requires decision. It requires action. It doesn't just happen. But it results in being renewed with hearts of flesh that are truly alive with love. It means cleansed in our thought, cleansed in our word, and cleansed in our deeds. It means becoming beacons, bright beacons of light in dark times of trial. As I said, discipleship like a car requires ongoing attention, maintenance. If you decide it's too much trouble to change the oil in your car, 
or otherwise take care of it, it damages the car. If you decide it's too difficult or too much trouble to love God and love your neighbor, even if your neighbor is your enemy, it damages you and your neighbor. Mature discipleship, living the baptismal life, is the most important thing before us as Christians. Over the past two years, in every congregation of the diocese, I presented and led conversations on mature discipleship in this age of alienation. Many of you have attended at least one of those conversations. We've made lists of disciple practices and characteristics, things that build up, create, and make new, such as being loving, generous, and forgiving. These are things we take on as the armor of light. We've made lists of worldly practices and characteristics, things that tear down, destroy, and erode the fabric of our common life, such as pride, greed, and fear. These are among the practices God calls us to cast away as works of darkness. And thirdly, we've made lists of the kinds of conflicted situations and issues around which God calls us to choose how we will act in the moment, choosing between the way of light and love and the way of darkness and despair, such as tensions around race, religion, or partisan politics. These lists, which you created in your own words and in your own congregations, are long lists, especially when you aggregate all the words from all the congregations. The challenge inherent in these lists could seem daunting and addressing them unattainable, far greater and more impactful than the checklist for your car's maintenance. But love, only love, God's love and our love shows us a way through the alienation and divisiveness all around us. Only love creates restores and maintains mature Christian discipleship. There really are many conversations about mature discipleship going on in the congregations of this diocese, and that is good news. Many of you have heard me talk about a question I ask the priest in charge of a congregation every time I come for a visitation. What new signs of Christian maturity have emerged since my last 
visitation. The answers to this question, the more we talk about mature discipleship, are gradually getting deeper and more substantive in describing inner changes in our lives in Christ within our communities. The centennial campaign from generation to generation in the church, our campaign to redevelop York Place, Gravit Camp and Conference Center, and our Canterbury Campus Ministries is about mature discipleship. It's about our creating places and contexts for the coming generations to learn and practice the way of love. One priest in the diocese eloquently captured how the centennial campaign points us toward godly discipleship. She said, all three campaign projects help people at different phases of their life, lives ask, reflect on, and answer important questions. At Gravit, it's, who am I? In Canterbury Ministries, it's, what kind of adult will I be? At York Place, it's what can I offer the world now that I'm old? Tending our own Christian maturity also includes creating the environments for future generations to be made, equipped, and sent as mature disciples of Jesus Christ. Maintaining a car to last a long time takes attention and perseverance. Restoring a car to its original performance and luster takes even more attention, persistence, and time, not to mention money. Mature discipleship takes perseverance too, and daily attention through what some would call a rule of life, a pattern prayer and relationship in the world that ever draws us into the protection and embrace of the armor of light. When through baptism we have died with Christ in his death and found new life in his resurrection, we begin to see signs of our transformation and newness in following Christ's way. When a longer view of life, an eternal view, gives us the inner character, no longer to be reactively tossed about by the winds of political tempest. When humility fills us with the grace to recognize that we might not see things in the world as clearly as we claim to see them. When looking out for others takes precedence over self-protection and a closely guarded heart. When a deep, holy, inner joy subsumes our attempts at mere Christian cheerfulness.
Many years ago, a parishioner of mine in her 102nd year was dying. By all accounts, she had lived a life of grace, generosity, humility, and love. Her daughter, herself in her 80s, <laughs> early 80s, took me to see her as she approached her earthly end to give her communion and to say final prayers. Nearly blind, she knew most of the prayers by heart and had a palpable radiance about her. We sat and talked for a short time, during which I quietly asked her if she was ready to go. Her eyes lit up. Oh, yes! She exclaimed as she lifted her arms and her face toward the ceiling. I can see Jesus reaching out to me. He's calling my name and telling me to come home. And I just say back to him, I'm coming. I'm coming. Just wait a minute. <laughs> Becoming a mature disciple means going deep into the waters. And she had gone deep for many, many years. In that well-known and much-beloved prayer attributed to St. Francis of Assisi, we are shown the way into the heart of the baptized life. Cleansed, new, and radiant for life. Let us pray. Lord, make us instruments of your peace. Where there is hatred, let us so love. Where there is injury, pardon. Where there is discord, union. Where there is doubt, faith. Where there is despair, hope. Where there is darkness, light. Where there is sadness, joy. Grant that we may not so much seek to be consoled as to console, to be understood as to understand, to be loved as to love. For it is in giving that we receive it is in pardoning that we are pardoned. And it is in dying that we are born to eternal life.